Some stories were never supposed to be told. Stories that exist in the twilight between science and the supernatural, between history and horror. Stories that speak of terrifying things. Stories that you want to hear. Stories that you need to hear. Stories that will sink their teeth in and never let you go. My name is Mike Brown, and this is Pleasing Terrors. Episode 26, Monster of the Deep. Late on the night of November 20th, 1850, night watchman George Pollard Jr. walked his beat on the quiet streets of a small island 30 miles south of Cape Cod, Massachusetts. He was an old man, long past his prime. To the people of the island, he was a nobody, an invisible man, a shadow among shadows, and he didn't mind. He considered it a mercy. He remembered a time when people knew who he was, when they remembered the horror that was associated with his name, and he was content to walk the streets at night and be ignored. The island was a strange place. It had a long history, one that stretched back much further than the memories of its white inhabitants. It was a place enshrouded in a fog of folklore and superstition. It was a place where the inhabitants often waited for bad news to roll in with the tide. The island was settled by the British in 1659, but had been home to Native Americans for countless years before that. And it was those early residents which gave this place its name. While the locals called it the Grey Lady of the Sea because of how the fog often enveloped it, its true name was Nantucket, which was thought to have meant in the midst of the waters or faraway land. It was an apt name, as this little island had been the home port for ships that had crossed the globe in search of whales, who were valued for the oil that could be harvested from their bodies. In 1672, a whale entered the harbor and was killed by the colonists. This event marked the beginning of the whaling industry, which after almost 200 years was now in decline in Nantucket, as the business shifted to the town of New Beresford, which was easier to access by train. The fall of Nantucket from economic grace had begun on the night of July 13, 1846, when the town had suffered a devastating fire that was fueled by the warehouses full of whale oil. It destroyed much of the town and left hundreds of people homeless and poverty-stricken. Many left the island, but others stayed and rebuilt, among them George Pollard, Jr. He remembered the glory days, a time when, as Herman Melville described it, two-thirds of this terraqueous globe are the Nantucketers, for the sea is his, he owns it, 
as emperors' own empires. While many Nantucketers might revel in such boasts when they were in their cups, in their sober heart of hearts, they knew that in truth they feared the sea. For as much as they had taken from it, they had at times been forced to pay a terrible price. They remembered the ships that had set sail from the island and never returned. The sea was a place of bountiful gifts, but for this small community of mariners, it was also their version of hell. An underworld not of fire and brimstone, but of water and darkness. Sailors referred to it as Davy Jones's locker, a place of wrecked ships and drowned sailors. They called him Davy Jones, but he was not a man. He was a being with malevolent eyes, three rows of teeth, horns, and a tail. He was their version of the devil, and he waited for them in the depths of the ocean, calling them home. The sailors of Nantucket armored themselves with superstitions, which they hoped would keep them from harm. It was good luck to have a cat on board the ship. The right tattoos were thought to offer some protection. Touching one's collar or whistling at the right time could mitigate danger. However, whistling at the wrong time could bring on calamity, as could setting sail on a Friday, having a woman on board, or killing an albatross. But the worst of luck a ship could suffer was to set sail with a Jonah amongst the crew. The biblical story of Jonah tells of a prophet who was sent by God to the city of Nineveh to warn the inhabitants that they must stop their wicked behavior or their city would be destroyed. Jonah, fearing the task that he had been given, fled to the port city of Jaffa, where he attained passage aboard a ship sailing to Tarshish. A storm overtook the ship and threatened to sink it. The sailors realized that it was not an ordinary storm, but one of supernatural origin, and they cast lots to determine who aboard had brought this disaster upon them. It was their passenger Jonah who finally confessed to being responsible. He asked that they throw him overboard, in the hopes that their lives might be spared. The crew resisted at first, but when it appeared that there was no other way to survive, they threw him into the sea. As the ship drew away, the crew noticed that the storm remained centered on Jonah as he struggled to tread water and soon slipped beneath the waves. Unbeknownst to the crew, he did not die. He was swallowed by a monstrous fish and remained within its belly for three days before he was brought to the surface and safely deposited on land. The story of Jonah, thought by many to be a parable, was intended to teach the lesson that God is merciful and can see you through even the most difficult of times. It also tells the listener that they must obey his will or be destroyed. Sailors discerned a much simpler message, that calamities at sea had a supernatural source, and that if someone on board was cursed by God, 
he might bring down the entire ship if he wasn't discovered in time. Sailors who were aboard a vessel that met with catastrophe were often labeled a Jonah and found it difficult, if not impossible, to find a ship that would accept them. Night watchman George Pollard Jr. knew all about the superstitions of the island. He had once been a sailor. He had once been a Jonah as well. He had gone to sea and met with disaster. He had been blamed and subsequently banished to a life on land. He could have moved elsewhere and started a new life, but he had remained on the island and endured the scorn of his family and neighbors. He remained so that every year, on the night of November 20th, he could be close to the sea while he fasted and remembered. There was an often overlooked lesson to be learned from the story of Jonah, and it was one which George Pollard had learned from experience. There were monsters in the sea. They dwelled in its darkest depths. They were the denizens of Davy Jones' locker, and those not restrained by the will of God were terrible creatures that could destroy ships and slaughter their passengers and crew. Thirty years before, he had seen such a creature. Thirty years before, he had looked into the water and seen a monster of the deep. One of the earliest writers to record stories of sea monsters was the Roman naval commander Pliny the Elder. He made a hobby of studying natural phenomena. He was also a prolific writer. His last book, written before he was consumed by the fires of Mount Vesuvius, was entitled Naturalis Historia, or Natural History. Within its pages, he recounted stories of many strange and mysterious creatures. He mentioned the skeleton of an enormous monster that was once exhibited in Rome. It had washed ashore in Joppa, the same port from which Jonah was said to have fled to the sea. It was over 40 feet long, and he believed it to be the skeleton of Catos, a monster that had once served the Greek god Poseidon. Pliny also wrote about a monster called the Kraken. The Kraken was a giant octopus who was said to be able to drag whole ships under the sea with its tentacles and was thought to dwell in the waters near northern Europe. Sightings of this monster would be recorded for centuries, in 1782, a British fleet mysteriously vanished during the night. French malacologist Pierre Denis de Montfort claimed that the fleet had been destroyed by a kraken. However, this assumption would be proven false when the British Navy found a survivor who revealed that the fleet was actually destroyed by a hurricane. It is now believed that stories of the kraken had their origins in the sightings of giant squid. Pliny spoke of how the governor of Gaul had written to Emperor Tiberius, describing the bodies of Nereids, humanoid women covered from head to toe in scales, that washed ashore on the beaches of what would later be France, and how one of them sang a haunting song before she died. He wrote of a merman in the Bay of Cadiz, who would climb onto the deck of his ship at night, causing it to tilt until it almost sank. 
A similar incident occurred during the final year of World War I. On April 30, 1918, off the coast of Ireland, the crew of the HMS Coriopsis, British warship, spotted a German U-boat dead in the water. The Germans quickly abandoned the submarine and rowed toward the Coriopsis in their lifeboats. As soon as they were safely aboard the ship, they surrendered. British sailors were surprised at how eager the German crew had been to give up, but they were shocked when they were told what had happened the night before. The submarine had surfaced so that the crew could recharge its batteries, and the captain and his men had come up onto the outer hull of the vessel to enjoy some fresh air. That was when something climbed out of the water and onto the deck of the submarine. It was dark, and they couldn't see it very well but the captain said that it had large eyes set in a horny sort of skull and a small head, but with teeth that could be seen glistening in the moonlight. The weight of the creature caused the submarine to begin to capsize, and water began to pour through an open hatch. The crew opened fire on it to no discernible effect. The creature destroyed the forward gun, as well as much of the forward deck plating, and then disappeared back into the ocean. The damage rendered the U-boat unable to submerge, and so they were forced to sit on the surface and wait to be captured. Though the description of this creature defies explanation, it bears some resemblance to the story of the merman that was recorded by Pliny. It also begs the question if it was Davy Jones himself ascending from the depths to wreak havoc on the surface before returning to his home in the deep. There are creatures in the depths of the sea that escaped Pliny's notice. And though they are not as mysterious as the monster that attacked the U-boat, they are no less frightening for their familiarity. Fishermen along the coast of Baja, California, talk about a rarely seen but much feared creature called the Black Demon. It is a shark that has been described as being 60 feet in length. It has been speculated by some cryptozoologists that it is a megalodon, a giant prehistoric shark thought to have lived almost 3 million years ago. According to the stories told by Mexican fishermen, the black demon is much more aggressive than other sharks and has been known to attack and possibly sink fishing boats. Perhaps the most famous account of a battle with the monster of the deep was related in a book first published in November of 1851. It told the story of a young sailor named Ishmael and the final voyage of the whale ship Pequot under the command of a peg-legged Captain Ahab. While Ishmael had signed on for a whaling expedition that would be a commercial venture, Captain Ahab soon revealed that he had an ulterior motive for the trip. He was seeking a specific creature, a giant white whale that he had encountered on a previous voyage, one that he had only barely survived. The whale had torn off his leg at the knee, and Ahab wanted revenge. The Pequod ultimately found the whale, and after a great battle, Ahab was killed the ship was destroyed, and the crew was lost, with the exception of a single survivor, Ishmael. 
The book Moby Dick was a novel written by Herman Melville. It was a work of fiction, but it was based on Melville's experiences as a young man aboard a Nantucket whaling ship, as well as historical accounts of violent encounters with whales that were all too real. Though Melville didn't know it at the time, there was a real-life incident that occurred even as he was working on the novel that eerily mirrored his writing. When he later learned of it, he remarked, Ye gods, I wonder if my evil art has raised this monster. On August 20th, 1851, the Anne Alexander, a whaling ship from New Bedford, Massachusetts, under the command of Captain John de Blois, encountered a large whale in the Pacific. The ship launched two smaller whaleboats who set off in pursuit. The sailors in one of the boats harpooned the whale, which proceeded to drag them along before turning and biting down on the boat, destroying them. The second boat rescued the men, and another small boat was sent from the ship so that they could continue to hunt the whale. As they approached it a second time, it attacked again, destroying the second boat. The sailors crowded into the remaining boat and began to make their way back to the ship. They were horrified to see the whale pursuing them, but though it passed very close, it did not attack. The captain ordered the ship to close on the whale, and the crew managed to spear it with another harpoon, but it quickly dove beneath the surface. When they spotted it again a short time later, it was moving directly towards the ship. It rammed into the hull, punching a hole through the skin of the ship, causing it to begin taking on water. The crew was forced to abandon the vessel. The whale in Moby Dick was actually inspired by a real albino sperm whale that the sailors of Nantucket called Mocha Dick because it was known to frequent the area near Mocha Island off the coast of Chile. It was said to have survived over a hundred attempts to kill it, between the time it was first encountered in 1810 and its death in 1838. It was known to be friendly and would even swim alongside ships until it was attacked. It was only then that it became aggressive. In 1838, Mocha Dick was finally killed after coming to the aid of another whale whose calf had just been slain by the whalers. The 70-foot-long whale had been impaled with 19 harpoons when it finally died. While Mocha Dick was the inspiration for the whale in Melville's story, the dramatic battle at the close of the novel was inspired by an encounter that occurred almost 30 years earlier in the same location where the Anne Alexander met its end. It was an encounter with which night watchman Frank Pollard was very familiar one that had haunted him ever since. Like the Anne Alexander, the Essex was a whale ship that sailed out of Nantucket. It was an old ship, but was considered to be a lucky one because of its long history of successful whaling expeditions. Its captain was George Pollard Jr., who at 29 was one of the youngest men to ever command a whaling vessel. He was considered to be a lucky sailor, hence his quick promotion to captain. 
He was joined on this expedition by his 17-year-old cousin, Owen Coffin. He promised Owen's mother that he would keep him safe. The Essex reached its hunting grounds in the Pacific in January of 1820. But despite its history of success, the months that followed would be frustrating. And by November, the crew had little to show for their efforts. Finally, on November 16th, lookouts spotted the telltale waterspouts of a surfacing whale, and a boat was lowered into the water. The whale disappeared beneath the surface, only to surface beneath the boat, smashing it to pieces. Four days later, they found a pod of sperm whales and two boats were lowered to begin the hunt. One of the boats was damaged when a whale struck it with its tail, forcing it to head back to the ship for repairs. The other boat, commanded by Captain Pollard, harpooned a whale and was dragged several miles away. As the crew on board the ship worked to repair the damaged boat, they saw a giant whale, the largest they had ever seen, rise from the deep and sit motionless on the surface of the water. It began swimming very swiftly toward the Essex and rammed into the side of the ship. The whale was stunned by the impact, and for a few minutes it lay alongside the vessel. It was 85 feet long, the same size as the Essex. The whale recovered and then swam a short distance away before it turned and charged the ship. It drove right into the bow of the vessel, crushing it and pushing the ship back before it tore itself loose and dove, never to be seen again. By the time Captain Pollard's boat returned to the Essex, having lost the whale that they had harpooned, the ship was already beginning to sink. The crew took refuge in the three remaining boats as the ship began to go under. They spent two days salvaging what they could from the wreck of the ship, but it wouldn't be enough. There were 20 men in three small whaleboats, and they were 2,000 nautical miles west of South America. Captain Pollard insisted that they head for the Marquesas Islands, 1,200 miles to the east, but the crew wanted to try to reach the coast of the continent. Pollard argued that it would be a longer and more difficult journey, but the crew overruled him. They had heard that the Marquesas were inhabited by cannibals. This fear would prove to be tragically ironic. Even though they rationed their supplies, much of the food had been soaked with seawater and served only to increase their thirst. Soon the sailors were drinking their own urine. Eventually, men began to die from the lack of fresh water. Within a few weeks, they found their way to Henderson Island, which, while uninhabited, allowed them for a brief time to drink fresh water and eat the small number of birds, eggs, and crabs that were to be found there. But eventually, the food became scarce. Most of the survivors got back in their boats and continued their journey. Three men decided to remain on the island. A year later, they would be rescued. The men who left the island soon began to die, and as their numbers dwindled, 
the boats eventually drifted apart. One of them, which contained three men, would eventually be found washed up on an island with three skeletons inside. They would be the lucky ones. By February 1st, what little food the men in Pollard's boat had brought with them was gone. And as the days passed, they became desperate. Though they did not yet realize it, they were on the threshold of a profound truth. The superstitions which they had trusted for so many years were meaningless. There were no monsters to be found here in the middle of the ocean, only animals that would protect themselves when forced. The devil was not waiting for them in the depths of the sea. He was here amongst them. They had only to look at the surface of the water to see the reflection of his face, though they would not have recognized him. He did not have horns or three rows of teeth or a tail. His face was dirty and sunburned, and he looked back at them with bloodshot eyes, eyes that revealed a hunger not for a human soul, but for human flesh. There were four of them in the boat, and they decided that one would have to die so that the others could live. They drew lots to determine who that would be. The loser was 17-year-old Owen Coffin, the cousin of Captain Pollard. Pollard would later say that he offered to take his relative's place, but that Owen refused. Few believed him. The teenager was shot by one of his fellow crewmen, and then the survivors proceeded to eat him until there was nothing left but his bones. Ten days later, one of the remaining sailors, a man named Ray, died. When Pollard and the final crewmen were found by the Dauphin, another Nantucket whale ship, twelve days later, they were gnawing on his bones. They were almost within sight of South America. Herman Melville later speculated that all would have survived had they followed Captain Pollard's orders after the Essex sank. Even though he was rescued, for Pollard, one horror still remained when he returned to Nantucket. He would have to face Owen Coffin's mother, Nancy, and explain her son's fate. Pollard would go to sea again, but his career was all but over. He would come to be seen as a Jonah, an unlucky man who would spend the rest of his days as a night watchman on Nantucket. With time... His infamy receded, and he became invisible to those around him, until he was eventually sought out by a writer who was researching a novel. Herman Melville would later say of Pollard, To the islanders he was a nobody. To me, the most impressive man, though wholly unassuming, even humble, that I ever encountered. Every year on November 20th, the anniversary of the destruction of the Essex, Pollard would undertake the same ritual. He would fast and allow himself to feel the hunger again. Most importantly, he would remember. He would remember the destruction of his ship and the months of starvation and thirst. 
he would have the opportunity to reflect on the cruel joke unknowingly played upon him by those who had referred to him as a Jonah. In the midst of the storm, Jonah offered to sacrifice his own life to save the others aboard the ship. When Pollard was put to the same test, he had betrayed his family's trust and let his teenage cousin die in his place. Davy Jones did not have to take Pollard's soul. He had offered it willingly, and in return had asked only for a little bit of meat. That food would afford Pollard the opportunity to live, to spend long hours adrift in a watery desert with nothing to do but stare at its surface and ponder the face that he saw reflected there, a face whose eyes contained more than a hint of madness a face stained with the blood of a boy entrusted to his care, the face of a monster of the deep. This episode of the Pleasing Terrors podcast was written and performed by Mike Brown. It was edited, mixed, and produced by Michael Dalbello at Charleston Sound Studio. For more information on Pleasing Terrors, please visit us on Facebook and Twitter at pleasingtears.com. Thank you for listening.